This is Ian Freebairn-Smith, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives and music. It's a great pleasure to introduce a man I've known many years, um, who will in turn introduce our guest speaker. I'm talking about Mr. David Raxa. David. I think this puts me in an interesting spot because you see, <laughs> there is a man I'm about to introduce who needs no introduction, and I do it. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow, he is in a class by himself. He is an absolutely extraordinary person. We've been friends for very, very many, many years. And I think during that time, each of us can be counted upon to have done at least one thing right. <laughs> I speak of Elmer Bernstein, who needs to introduction, and therefore, I'm not introducing him. preceded by two people who actually have a very important place of my life. Uh, I've always told Van, you know, when I was a kid growing up and learning about orchestration, Van had written uh, a book about orchestration which had all the, the instruments and their capabilities. And of course, when I was first learning orchestration, that was my Bible. I was never realizing as a kid in New York I would ever get to meet him, which of course I have all these, lo these many years. And uh, I was a New York snob, you know, as a kid. I, you know, I uh, started my life uh, by uh, being shepherded by Aaron Copeland, that was the, for whom I played the little waltz when I was about 12, uh, and sort of shepherded the early part of my career. And I was a New York snob when it came to anything of like film music, you know. Uh, I mean, I think that uh, my piano teacher, who was uh, Austrian, uh, barely tolerated Tchaikovsky, you know. <laughs> and uh, I never thought about film music. Uh, one day, I went to see a movie uh, called Laura. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, what film music can do, the kind of thrilling thing that, that, that film music can do. And uh, at that point, I never had any idea I would be here. Uh, but one of the joys of being here through all the years that I have been is knowing and having David Braxton as a friend. And we fought a lot of battles together of various kinds, sometimes successful. Really. <laughs> uh, which brings up. You know, the whole thing of, you know, I, I can't believe I'm here in the first place, but looking around the room, I see enough gray hair to know I'm in the right place. <laughs> uh, although, you know, talking to, to the gray-haired people is preaching to the choir. <laughs> um, you now, everything in my life is amazing how lives work. I had an incident happen to me uh, just about six weeks ago, I was at a party during the run-up to the Academy for Far From Heaven. I was at this Far From Heaven party, 
And uh, I was introduced to Julian Sands, so I conducted a score that uh, my protege, Cynthia Miller, had written for this thing. And um, he said, oh, I'd like you to meet my wife. And, and I said, oh, thank you. I to meet her. Well, very nice. I said, my name is Evgeny. Yes, fine. And she started to query me in great detail about uh, who I studied with. And it was very strange. People don't often ask that. They ask in a general way, you know. Did you go to conservatory? Uh, you know, how, where did you get your training? No, but she wanted chapter and verse about every teacher. So I said, well, you know, I started with Aaron Copeland, and then uh, he turned me over to uh, uh, a person called Israel Sitkowitz, who was a, a protege of his. And I thought she was going to faint. And she said, Israel Sitkowitz. She said, Israel Sitkowitz was my father. <laughs> Now, you've got to understand, you know, talking about how things happen by happenstance. I haven't seen Israel Sitkowitz since 1936. <laughs> Israel Sitkowitz was teaching me harmony and counterpoint. And in those days, uh, I was a Stalinist, he was a Trotskyite. We used to fight a lot. <laughs> uh, so that we talked a lot about that sort of stuff. Uh, in any case, you know, my being here and talking to you is a series of things on just like that. Uh, I, uh, you know, like every good American boy from a Jewish family, I had to learn an instrument when I was little. And uh, so I started to play the piano. And uh, when uh, I was about 12 years old, uh, my piano teacher was a bit annoyed with the fact that I was always fooling around, you know. Instead of playing the scales, I was improvising and just doing inappropriate things for a young piano student. But God bless her, instead of whipping me and saying, practice your scales, she took me to meet Aaron Copeland, uh, who was a young colleague of hers. And she said, oh, go in there. And I, I had no idea who Aaron Copeland was. Uh, he was not. Then the story ultimately became. And uh, uh, I sat down and played them a little A minor waltz. I can still remember the first few bars of that piece. Uh, and so I played in this little waltz, and then it was over, and my piano teacher said to Aaron, she said, uh, oh, does this kid have any talent? And Aaron said, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, let's give him some lessons and find out. <laughs> so, I mean, that's how I started to study composition in the first place, just on that peculiar accident. Uh, I enjoyed it, and uh, I must say, I must have studied elementary harmony for 12 years. <laughs> it seemed to me every year started, I had to start studying elementary harmony with somebody. Then two-part counterpoint, three-part counterpoint, never got to composition. Uh, even though, even when I got to the point where I was studying with people like Roger Sessions, who was a most interesting man, but all he was interested in is if you could do a good three-part counterpoint. Uh, eventually, I studied with a composer who was very, uh, uh, who was very influential in my life, was uh, Stefan Volpe, who, uh, who is, by the way, enjoying a terrific revival right now, and most of his music is being recorded now. He was a uh, sort of the closest thing to him, I guess, would be Alban Berg. It was that sort of school. Uh, and of course, <laughs> eventually we, we got we got into row music, you know. 
And uh, uh, that was an amazing thing, actually. <laughs> Just following the rules, you know, in Rome, you said, yeah, I could turn out a quartet a week. Uh, you wouldn't want to hear them. But <laughs> Uh, which reminds me, I think it was David who told me that Schoenberg uh, uh, was not interested in that. that. Schoenberg always wanted to know if the person who wrote it knows what it sounds like. <laughs> uh, but in any case, uh, even though I studied composition right, right from the beginning, I had no idea that I would ever uh, apply that talent in, in a commercial arena. I, I like to write music. I was writing music. I wrote, you know, a, a lot of music at that point, a lot of song cycles, uh, some symphonic works at that point in time, some of which I actually performed when I was a kid. Uh, in any case, uh, I did become a concert pianist. I did do that. Gave my first concert in New York when I was 15. And uh, went on and on and on with that. Uh, it, was, it was interrupted by an event called World War II. Uh, and uh, I'm talking about coincidences, how I got here today. This is part of the story. It's very long-winded, but it's part of the story. <laughs> uh, during the war, uh, when it was discovered I could play the piano, uh, even as early as basic training, I was recruited, you know, by special services to do propaganda <coughs> playing, you know, the radio stations talking about the boys in BCT-10 and ten in Greensboro and stuff like that. At that point, I met a writer by the name of Millard Lampel, no longer with us now. And uh, uh, I, I, I left BTC 10 and Millard at that point was transferred to Nashville. Uh, and in the meantime, Millard uh, was transferred to New York City. Uh, to a special services unit completely uh, devoted to propaganda during the war. You know, stuff for the home funds. And uh, what he decided to do as a piece of Americana was that each program was to contain an American folk song, sung by an American folk singer icon. However, they were to be orchestrated, and they would be, it was to be conventional symphonic orchestra and the folk singer. Uh, and Miller, remembering that I had an interest in folk music and had learned a great deal about it, I, I must tell you that this is going to sound very strange to you, especially you younger people who know all about folk, you know, uh, as, a, as, a, as a designation. When I was a young man in the 30s, the only people who knew anything about folk music were communists. <laughs> and uh, the, but I knew something about folk music. And so Miller got me transferred to New York to orchestrate these, these, these things. And it was very exciting. The first thing I did was to orchestrate a thing called the Blue Tail Fly. And Burl Ives came along and sang it with the orchestra. It was the first time he ever performed with the symphony orchestra. I mean, and it was all very exciting, and it was fine, uh, and uh, it was a lot better than getting killed, of course. <laughs> and uh, finally, one day, we had a composer on staff, his name was Lothar Pearl. Uh, he was a, basically a, a writer of ballet music, and 
yes, I'm a pianist. And he wrote the music for the dramatic part of the show. So there would be a segment within the show, 15-minute dramatic piece. And he wrote the music for that. So one day, uh, uh, this organization was being headed by a Los Angeles violinist that some of you here will remember, Harry Bluestone. Oh, oh. Yeah. And Harry was the, was the music director of this outfit. So Harry called me into the office one day and he said, do you think you could write a dramatic score? Now at this point, I'm, uh, I'm 22 or something like that. And I was trained. I was trained, you know, and I'd written stuff. I'd never done anything like that. I said, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'd love to take a whack at it. So he handed me a script. We had we talked for about 15 minutes. Locked me up a room uh, in a room in the engineering department of Yale University, where we were stationed at that time. And I had overnight to do it. Uh, it was uh, probably maybe six minutes of music. You know, in a 15-minute segment. And I had, uh, you know, overnight to do this job, uh, which was very exciting. I was pretty fine. And the next day, we went to New York, uh, where these shows were done in a theater called the Maxine Elliott Theater in New York City. And, of course, I was able to say, after the war was over, you know, that uh, I was in the Maxine Elliott Theater of war. Uh, uh, the uh, the day of the the day of the performance, you know, we said have a rehearsal. It's like a radio show, one rehearsal, and then you do it. And uh, I just didn't have the nerve to attend the rehearsal. It was just I was too, I was absolutely terrified. Uh, I was rigid, and so <laughs> what I did is I went to the men's room. I mean, that's always a good out. <laughs> but you know, for forty minutes. <laughs> Uh, so I went to the men's room, and um, I, 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 the thing was over, you know, the guys came in, you know, the men's room after the rehearsal was over, and nobody looked shocked, you know, or horrified, everything terrible. <laughs> so, uh, I guess it was okay. Uh, so anyway, the, 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 the next time, uh, I became like a utility infielder in baseball, you know, <laughs> the guy that, that, that does every fifth game. So I would do a score once in a while. The second time I had a chance to do a score, I wrote a score which started out in seventh form. So Harry said, gave me the baton and said, go. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, I thought that was really, I mean, it was terribly exciting for me, and it's what we all do and what we're about. It was terribly exciting to write something that serviced the drama, to have it played by these great musicians, and to know that what you've worked on is going to be heard by millions of people, you know, right now. And that was terribly exciting. I found that terribly exciting. I thought it was a hell of a lot more exciting then finding I, that 70 years hence I would still be playing the Apashyamana. <laughs> uh, so when the war was over, I uh, decided this is it, that's what I want to do. But I remember going to uh, CBS to try to get interviewed, you know, to get some work writing music, you know, dramatic music. And of course, you know, 
uh, it was one thing to be employed by Uncle Sam, but it was another thing to try to be employed for real. <laughs> Didn't happen. Uh, about a year or two uh, after that, uh, Norman Corwin, a great American writer for radio, uh, was doing a show for the United Nations, as was Millard Lampel. Norman Corwin was doing a show for the United Nations for radio called Junction in Europe. It was about international cooperation. And Millard Lampel was writing a show called Sometime Before Morning, which was a celebration, or left, left, was a celebration of the truce between the Israelis and the Palestinians after, in 1947. Uh, and in any case, uh, a very funny thing happened on that show, by the way. Uh, I didn't have a lot of experience conducting. I had some, you know, I was schooled as a conductor. But that's very different from suddenly finding yourself in front of the NBC symphony, uh, <laughs> which, I, which is what I found my, where I found myself. And also, a gangly, tall actor wandering over who was the, uh, you know, the uh, moderator on the show walks over to me and says, Hi, I'm Hank Fonda. Oh. <laughs> and I'm a kid and I'm saying to myself, no kidding. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, the, the thing about uh, uh, sometime before morning, two things happened, uh, coincidentally. So Millard Lampell had written a novel called The Hero. And uh, the producer, the man who was to produce this, was uh, a writer and at that point in time, Vice President of Columbia Pictures, his name was Sidney Buckman. Uh, and Sidney Buckman happened to be in New York when this show went down. And then a sort of uh, a wonderful, wonderful thing happened for me. Uh, in those days, it was not ordinary to have reviews of music, especially of radio shows. And uh, I apparently reached a very sympathetic ear uh, in the music with the show. And, uh, Variety gave it a really glowing review of the music. Uh, in the meantime, Millard was pounding away at Sidney Buckman, who was going to make this movie, uh, for uh, asked him if he would consider having me write the music for this movie. So, so <laughs> Sidney came with that. I was living in a fifth floor walk-up on 103rd Street at Broadway. And you were five, you had to fight cockroaches, you know, <laughs> to get up to the fifth floor. And Sydney came up with Millard. And Sydney was a really elegant man, very elegant man. I mean, he was cashmere from head to toe. <laughs> and uh, he walked in and he said, uh, would you like to do this? He asked this to me. And I said, uh, yeah. So, and, and that's, and, and that's, I'm talking about one thing leading to another, and that's how I got here. Uh, I got here in 1950, did the music for a film called Saturdays, it was called Saturdays Hero at that time, and uh, uh, I haven't really looked back since, uh, except for the fact that uh, I was grey-listed during the McCarthy period, that was very interesting. Uh, and uh, rescued, of all people, by Cecil B. DeMille. Uh, what happened was that I, you know, all of a sudden, I, I, did, I worked in 19, 
53. All of a sudden, in 53, I seemed to become unemployable. And I didn't understand why that was. Nobody accused me of anything. But, you know, and then I, uh, you know, but I was unemployable in the grand sense, but not so unemployable as I could not do pictures like Robot Monster <laughs> and Cat Women of the Moon and Miss Robin Crusoe. <laughs> they were very, very, very valuable lessons, though, because, you know, as there was no money to speak of, I, I think I remember for uh, uh, Robot Monster, I got $800 to compose, orchestrate, conduct, and whatever. And, uh, but you know, if you're going to do a really ridiculous film, it's, it, you might as well do one that's at the top of everybody's most worst. <laughs> uh, but it was like, you know, those things are always great learning experiences because you learn how to use uh, modest means. And in fact, one of the means I started to use at that point were electronics, strangely enough. Electronically uh, enhanced celli. Uh, I used uh, the good old Hammond B3 and uh, uh, things like that. So, so the effects for me were interesting and very educational. Uh, the way Cecil B. DeMille got into it was very, it was very weird. Uh, in 1952, in 1952, I had done a, the music for a film called Sudden Fear. And it was an interesting experience because I, I, I did some things which appeared to be unusual at the time. Uh, so that, I mean, things like there's a big car chase at the end uh, of a film uh, which is sort of concertina the camera of the two pianos and orchestra, which apparently was an unusual sound for the time. It attracted attention in any case. Present of a running of that film was a man called Ingo Preminger. He was an agent. Uh, it was right after that I went into the robot monster phase. Uh, about, about three years later, it, Ingo's brother Otto Preminger, well known to my dear friend David Ratzman, who had, who uh, was responsible for my interest in films actually. Uh, uh, was looking for a composer for a film called Mount Gilnarm. And Ingo remembered that score for Sudden Fear, and he went to Otto and suggested, suggested me out of the blue. So Otto, of course, very understandably said, who the hell is he? And uh, uh, Ingo said, well, why don't you call around? Well, call John Green, you know. Well, he called Johnny. He was then Johnny. He was still Johnny. He called Johnny at that point, and uh, God bless Johnny. Johnny just gave me such a great send-off that I got the job. Uh, the, uh, at the same time, I had uh, been doing, because I needed, the, <laughs> I needed the money, and my wife was pregnant, and you know, uh, I was seven months arrears in the rent. <laughs> and so I got a job uh, playing the piano and doing the ballets for the Ocean Picture of Bahama. And uh, when that job was over, Roy Fiesta, a man called Roy Fiesta, who was head of the music department at uh, Paramount, called me and he said, look, we're doing a film here called The Court Jester. 
It's a Danny Kaye picture, and the music is the songs are being written by his wife, Sylvia Fine, who is a songwriter, but she doesn't know how to write things down, you know. So, you know, if you would, I would love you to do this, you know, as you did for Oklahoma, do this sort of thing. I've worked with Bob Holton on the choreography and write things down for Sylvia and so on and so forth. And I, by this time, because of the blacklisting, I was getting very, very nervous about uh, what I wanted to do. And I said to Roy, I said, you know, um, uh, I really don't want to do this kind of work. You know, I really want to write music. And Roy said to me, well, he said, I need you very badly for this thing for Sylvia. And Sylvia was a difficult case anyway. Um, and uh, he said, if you do this for me, I promise you that I will give you the first chance that when something comes along to write. So <laughs> that was the best deal on board at that point. So. I I did that for Roy at the end of the end of 1954. The last three months of 1954, I was working on with Sylvia Fine. By the way, we became great friends, Danny and Sylvia and I. Uh, as a result of that, so that was a bonus and that was nice. Uh, but come Christmas time, it's all over, and uh, I went home and celebrated celebrated Christmas. I think I had earned enough working on Oklahoma. That was an also an exciting thing because it involved Agnes and Mel. But uh, we're earned enough on Oklahoma. I think I eventually paid off part of the seven months rent I owed. Already I owed the seven months rent to a lady who just died and whom I never met. She owned the, the house I was living in. She was also a victim of the blacklist, an actress by the name of Karen Morley. And uh, the, I went home, and I think it was not more than four weeks later, five weeks later, I got a call from Roy Fiesta, and Roy said, I've got a composing contract for you. It's, it's composing, but it's one week. Would you be interested in doing it? I said, it's actually writing? Uh, he said, yes, it's composing. I said, well, what, what is it? He said, well, Cecil B. DeMille is making a picture here called The Ten Commandments. <laughs> and uh, actually, I think Cecil B. DeMille created The Ten Commandments. <laughs> he said, uh, Cecil B. DeMille is making a picture here called The Ten Commandments, and Victor Young will do the score. But along the way, he needs chants, he needs dances, he needs all kinds of things to shoot to. Uh, so, the first thing is a dance that he wants to have shot. So, I said, uh, okay, that sounds fine, it's composing. So, he takes me down to the set to meet the great man. And I go down to the set, and of course there were you know, 2,000 people there, there always were. Uh, and finally, the great man approached me, and uh, very courtly he was. And uh, he said, uh, uh, very nice to meet you, Mr. Bernstein. He was very formal. Followed by the next question, which was, 
Do you think you could do for ancient Egyptian music what Puccini did for Japanese music and Madame Butterfly? That was the only one. So I said, I, 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 and actually, I, God was good. I mean, I gave him the only answer that would have kept me there, I'm sure. I said, I don't know, but I'd like to try. I think if I said sure, I'd have been out of there just like that. So, okay, so we get going. I have a week now to write this dance. For those of you who will remember the picture, it is a particular dance which is easy, easily identified. It's a dance being done by Egyptian girls with long braids with orange pom-poms on, on the end of their braids. Anyway, you know, I, who knows anything about Egyptian, ancient Egyptian music? Nobody. Uh, we know the instruments, and some of the instruments can be played, and I've played them. Uh, but that still doesn't tell you what they played on them. Uh, so I wrote this, I wrote this piece, and orchestrated it myself, uh, was basically, basically Woodward's rhythm, uh, with the basic setup. And uh, the day came to play the piece, and Roy came up on the stage and listened to it, and he said, He's going to hate it. I said, why? He says, it's all high woodwinds. He hates high woodwinds. <laughs> now you tell me. Right? Uh, but I said, well, there's nothing for it. Anyway, uh, the great man came with his two secretaries in tow, which he always had. He had two secretaries for a very simple reason. Before the common usage of tape recorders, these two uh, secretaries took down every word you said and every word he said, so that three weeks later you couldn't say, but you said. It was, it was part of the record instead of tape recorder. So they come with him, and uh, he sits down and says, okay, let me hear it. Now the orchestra is outside, but he wanted he, he hears the recording. So we play the recording for him, and he sits there sort of stony-faced when it's over, and says nothing. Everybody's deathly quiet because they were terrified of him. Uh, and uh, he said, uh, let me hear it again. Uh, now, I, I, I know enough about show business. I thought maybe I should play it with the orchestra for him because it's showy, you know. Oh, he was too clever for that. I, suggest, I suggested that. He said, no, no, I just want to hear the recording. So uh, we played the recording for him. And he listens to it again gets up out of his chair with two secretaries in tow, without saying a word, goes to the door. At the door, he having a play off a drama, at the door he turns around and says, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, uh, the, the, that recording is in the film as it exists today. So it stayed. What happened with the Ten Commandments, by the way, ultimately was Victor became very ill. And by the time it was time to do the score, Victor was uh, was terminally ill. And I remember Victor running into Victor when it was one of the most darling men that ever ever worked this business. Uh, I, I ran into him a lot one day. He was smoking a cigar. He says, "My doctor says I shouldn't be doing this, but I'd rather I, I I'd rather die." He said. He said, "Look," he said to me, "Look," he said, "I you know I'm never going to be able to score this film." He said, "It's." Uh, it's, I would never live through another film with the bell. 
He said, if you have any way of getting it, go for it. And, you know, I, you have my blessing. So I said, well, I have no way to go for it. And, you know, I was bothering about the God of the great man. It's like, I want to do your score. But uh, uh, Roy Fiesta, the head of the music department, did do just that. And the reason he did it was, I think, I, I had gotten on really well with DeMille, and who was really, really a very difficult man. And you have to know only one thing about DeMille is that DeMille was at his heart more than anything else was an actor. And he, you decided what his role is going to be. You gave him the role. If you were afraid of him, he was terrified. If you thought that he was going to take care of you, he became Uncle Jake. And, um, you know, I, he was going to take care of me. <laughs> was, was, was what I thought. And he was always very, very kind to me about, uh, uh, on balance. Uh, so Roy Fiesta went to the mill and said, you know, I think I think uh, I think Bernstein could do this score. <laughs> the metal turned to him. He was great. He turned to him and he said, "Do you think he could be another Wagner?" <laughs> <laughs> so Roy said, "I don't know about that." <laughs> he said, "But I think he might be able to handle this score." So Demille called me down to his office and said, uh, "Would you be willing to write some things for me?" You know. Uh, I said, "Sure." Yeah. He said, I want a theme for Moses, I want a theme for Nefertiri, I want a theme for God, I want a theme for evil, I want a theme for Ramses. Okay, so I went away and wrote themes again for a while. Uh, I wasn't pushed for time. Uh, eventually it was time and DeMille came down to the corner office downstairs at Paramount that room. Uh, they had a nice piano there. And DeMille came with the two secretaries. <laughs> and DeMille said, okay, let me hear the theme for Moses. So I played theme for Moses. He said, and this is the first crack out of the box. He said, that's very good, strong. But how would you play it when he's a baby in the bulrushes? <laughs> <laughs> Improv time. <laughs> Uh, and so we went through each of these pieces. And then DeMille did something, uh, which I learned later on, was very, very characteristic. He turned to his two secretaries and he said, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> and God bless their memory, they both applauded. And DeMille then turned to me and said probably the most endearing thing he ever said, he said, do you think you could stand me for another six months? <laughs> and I said, I'll try. <laughs> uh, no, it was an amazing experience. In the midst of this, in a hiatus, just before we actually started to record, I had finished the score for The Man with the Gold Knot, which uh, I remember going to Otto Preminger's office one day, and I said, Otto, listen, I have an idea of what I want to do with this thing, but I think I'd better run it by you because it's kind of unusual. Uh, we said, what have you got in mind? I said, well, you know, we got a film here about a guy who wants to be a jazz drummer. I mean, that's his life. He wants to be a jazz drummer, and he's being messed up by drugs. I said, I was thinking of writing a score that heavily dominated by a big jazz orchestra, uh, jazz orchestra, the symphonic orchestra. Ano said something to me, 
Which I probably is going to surprise David. I, I don't think he probably ever said anything like that again before. He said, well, that's what you're here for. If that's what you think you want to do, do it. <laughs> now, this is from a man who had already fired me three times. <laughs> uh, I, I said, okay. But after about two weeks, Otto became very curious. He said, well, what's it going to sound like? You know? So finally, I remember at one point, Shelly Mann and I made a recording piano and drums and, <laughs> and played it for Otto, quiet them down. Uh, at the recording, though, he was great. The, uh, I had an office in Paramount at the time, because I was working on the Ten Commandments as well, and uh, oh, about three weeks later, this was at the end of 1955, uh, DeMille called me into the office and said to me, uh, I ran the man with the golden arm last night at my home. So I said, oh, I'm just afraid you might. <laughs> he said, no, he said, you know, if, I, uh, what you did with that film is fine. Don't do anything like that in the Ten Commandments. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you know, um, I, you know, feel very, very blessed in, in, in the life I've had here. Uh, the, the one thing that I'm sad about, and I'm, that's one of the things I'm happy uh, about being here today, is when I first came here, I mean, I was kind of not very much among giants. Uh, the, I came here at a time when you had David Raxon, when you had Alfred Newman, when you had Nicholas Roja, when you had Daniel D'Ambrick, you had Piotrov, it was just a Franz Waxman. It was, you know, endless. And what a school that was. What a school that was. And it's only in recent years that I've begun to assess the great debt that I owe to composers like Waxman and like Waxman, uh, from whom I learned a great deal and absorbed so much. Uh, it was a really, I mean, a halcyon period. We're going through now a not halcyon period, which all of us know about. I was very thrilled to find that the person who was supposed to be here is working. <laughs> I know very few people who are. The, I don't know, I really don't know uh, what to say about the, the, the state of, of where we are today. Uh, talent is there. Talent is there. David and I have both done a lot of teaching. We are always thrilled by the, what the young people can do. Uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, by and large, the, the films are not there for film music anymore. They're just not there for film music. I mean, that's why, I mean, for me, last year was such a blessing to run a, 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 a into a film like Far From Heaven, which was a film about, you know, people, you know, real people with real problems, you know. And everybody saw the 50s thing, and you know, the score, was that a reminiscent score? Was that a nostalgic score? I said, no, it was not a nostalgic score. If, the, if it were the same people today, I'd have written the same score. The score is supposed to be about feelings. Unfortunately, not too many films are about feelings. One of the one of the one of the kind of thrilling things that happened at the end of last year was the films that were nominated 
for music. I mean, it was one of the times, and while as much as I would have loved to have won the award, it was one of the times when all five scores were scores in films that were about feelings and, and, and about people. So, I don't know, maybe, that's a, maybe that is pointing something in the right direction. <laughs> but the thing, the thing, the life of music, from the very beginning, has always been about line. It's always been, uh, I have to use that word, you know, which sounds like a non-PC word, melody. Um, uh, I mean, it's like a word you're not supposed to say anymore. Uh, but if you think, we, in this room, if we all sit around and talk about one of the great scores of all time, one of the scores that we think of when we want to talk about the history of film music, every single one of them will be, will be a score that had a line in it. Every single one will be, a, will be something that had a line in it. Because that's what our, our art is about. It's about a line. And what our, what our great talent was supposed to have been, always, was to be the emotional core of the film. But it's very hard to be an emotional core of a film that has no emotion. And, uh, and uh, uh, special effects do not lend themselves necessarily to, uh, to great musical invention. I don't know the answer to that, but I think, I do think, and I have to believe that a good line wins. And I would encourage uh, you all, younger people in particular, who find yourselves in positions where you have an opportunity to do so Try it on your producer. Try it on your director. Uh, I would hate to think that all the people who are making films are so devoid of feelings that they cannot react to a melodic line. And I encourage all of you to, to do so. Now, funnily enough, although now people talk about me and they talk about me and they talk about me as a, a writer of lines, and I, I never thought of myself that way in a strange sort of way. I think of what is appropriate, what projects an emotion, what are you going to write that somebody hears that brings that person closer to the person in the film. That's what it's all about. Uh, uh, I just urge you all to, because I, I think we, there, I think you have the ability to change that. I really do. I have to believe, I have to believe that a good line will always win. It will always win. It may not win in a, a film like Matrix, you know, which is fine, that's fine, you know, horses for courses. Uh, but uh, certainly for the young composers that I admire are 
really struggling very, very hard to do just that. And I would urge you to do it. And remember one thing I was speaking to my son the other day, who was also a composer. I was speaking to him the other day, and he was saying to me, you know, uh, I find it very, very difficult to speak to businessmen, people who are just in business, you know, who have no relationship to the arts. But for all of you, I, my parting word is to say, remember, we are here in this art because art is where the dreams are. Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at asmac.org. This is Ian Freebairn Smith on behalf of the board, and I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, and our annual Golden Score Awards banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk and to Elliot Barker of Elbar Media for editing it for broadcast.